Chapter 14 of Seeing Things at Night This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nigel Boydell Seeing Things at Night by Harewood Brune Chapter 14 H. the Third, The Review of a Continuous Performance, Part 3 April 21st, 1920 Although we don't know the exact legal form, we think we have seen announcements of somewhat the same sort. At any rate, we want to advertise the fact that on and after this date, we will not be responsible for persons who may be injured by falling objects while passing the apartment house on the west side of 7th Avenue between 55th and 56th Streets. Our first hint of the danger came when the hairbrush disappeared and could not be found. That was only circumstantial evidence, but on Monday we caught him in the act of tossing out a hand mirror. It was our idea to dissuade him by trying to make him understand that breaking mirrors is bad luck but R says that it is best not to plant any superstitions in the undeveloped mind of a child. The best we could do was to take the mirror away and shadow him closely. But yesterday a bronze vase disappeared and two books. So far, no casualties have been reported. Although we live on the fifth floor, I don't believe the books could have hurt anyone very much. They were light fiction, but the vase is different. We told them not to leave the stove unguarded for a moment, and we are seeking to perfect a device to padlock the piano to the wall. As yet we have reached no plan to guard the books. Probably the best we can do is to allow any passer-by who is hit and hurt to keep the book. Of course the point naturally arises as to whether a passer-by who has been hit with the second volume of Gibbon's Rome has a right to demand the whole set. We rather think there would be justice in that. At any rate, we are not disposed to be petty about the matter, because we realise that from the fifth floor even a single volume of Gibbon might be deadly. A.W., who is frivolous, suggests that we lock up all but a certain number of suitable books which we shall allow H. Third to throw out of the window without interference. His list includes The Rise and Fall of the Dutch Republic, The Descent of Man, La Debacle, The Rise and Fall of Susan Lennox, and then he would add, rather optimistically we fear, It never can happen again. What is getting into children these days anyway? Frankly, we view their conduct with alarm. That spirit of destruction and unrest seems to have gripped them all. Where do they get it? Why has the Lust Committee failed to act in the matter? To us it seems a clear case of Bolshevist propaganda. April 23rd, 1920 H. the Third handed me a pencil and then stood around as if he expected me to do something with it. I didn't suppose he wanted me to commit myself in writing about any recent plays or books and I guessed that he desired something more pictorial. I drew a face and showed it to him. 
It wasn't any face in particular, and I didn't know whether to call it the spirit of the ages or a young Yugoslav artillery officer. H. 3rd looked at it with interest and promptly said, Baby! I let it go at that, and was pleased that he had caught the general intent of the work. Unfortunately, I tried to show him my versatility, and the next head was stuck underneath the pompadour and on top of a rather elaborate gown. But again he said, Baby! I added trousers, a walking stick, a high hat, a fierce scowl, and put a long pipe in the mouth. But he could see no difference. It was still, Baby! I was put in the quandary of setting H. third down as a little unintelligent, or stigmatising my art as ineffective, until I suddenly came upon the correct explanation. These pictures of mine were direct, naive, unspoilt by any theory of life or composition. They were the natural expression of a creative impulse. In them was the spirit of spring, the freshets, and early birds, and saplings, and what every young man ought to know, and all that sort of thing. Baby, said H. third, and he was quite right. I couldn't fool him by putting Peter Pan in long trousers. May the 5th 1920. This is the story of the low-cut lady and the lisping tot. It is contained in The Menace of Immorality by the Reverend John Roach Stratton in a chapter entitled Slaves of Fashion. I once heard one of the most famous reform workers of this city explain why she gave up low-cut gowns, writes Dr. Stratton. She explained how she was ready to start for the theatre one night in such a dress when her little boy of five said to her, But mother, you are not going that way. You are not dressed. And then, with trembling voice, she told us how all the evening through, as she sat in the playhouse, she kept hearing that sweet childish voice saying, Not dressed, not dressed, not dressed, until at last, with the blush of shame mantling her cheeks, and with the realization that a Christian mother should dress differently from the idle and godless women of the world, she drew her cloak about her, and went home, dressed or rather undressed, for the last time in such a costume. Nothing we have read in a month has been quite so disturbing to us as this simple little tale. Before it our theories tremble and fall. Upon many an occasion we have set down the conviction that little children should never be spanked under any provocation whatsoever, and yet if we had been that low-cut lady we would certainly have given that interfering and priggish little youngster a walloping. Even in the case of H. third, we are minded to make an exception in our programme. He may rampage and roar and destroy without laying himself open to corporal punishment, but he will do very well to refrain from any comment of any sort about our clothes or personal appearance. We do not propose to come home in our cloak from any show with our evening entirely spoilt by the fact that a sweet childish voice has been saying in our ear, Not shaved, not shaved, not shaved. June the 3rd, 1920 Of late I am beginning to notice with perturbation a distinctly sentimental streak in H. the third. Nothing else will account for his tenderness towards Goliath. 
When we first began to talk about him, he was treated by common consent rather scornfully. He was known to us as, Old Goliath, he talks too much. Even in those early days it cannot be said that Goliath was treated with special spite, for as the story grew in the telling he fared not much worse than David. Somehow or other I eventually came into the incident myself. Just now I can't remember whether it was at the special invitation of H. Third or my own egotistic urge. At any rate it seems that David, after knocking Goliath down, grew overbearing in his attitude to all the world. Goliath, it must be explained, was not killed, since death would involve explanations beyond the comprehension of H. Third. Goliath was merely hit in the chest and fell. The chest was stressed, since it is necessary every now and then to halt H. Third in his most playful moments with the admonition that hitting casual visitors in the face is not a friendly act. We pride ourselves on our old-fashioned Brooklyn hospitality. However, as we had said, David followed up his victory with the boast, I can beat any man in the world, at which point H. Third is supposed to chime in and lick him. In response to this challenge, Haywood Second appeared, and when David picked up another rock and threw it, H. Second cleverly put up his hands and caught the missile. He threw it back at David and knocked him down. Rollo offered the further amendment that he himself then appeared and knocked Haywood the second down. And, he told the child, I didn't need a rock. I used a snappy retort. He even went so far as to draw a picture of the occurrence, but it met with no favour from H. Third, who exclaimed, Haywood's second did not fell, he did not fell. I was much touched by this display of loyalty until I found that his feelings were just as much engaged in the fate of Goliath. This love of his for the Philistine he indicated suddenly one evening when he asked me to tell him the story of Sweet Goliath, and I found that nothing would satisfy him but the complete revision of the whole tale to the end that it should be Goliath who picked up the rock and vanquished David. I have tried to lure him away from this unauthorised version in vain. Only today I suggested, hopefully, that old Goliath, he talks too much. H. Third looked at me severely, but then his face brightened, and with all the unction of a missionary to China, he said, Goliath loves you. June 11th, 1920 Perhaps you can answer the challenge to American educational institutions contained in this letter from H. G. Wells, writes Floyd Dell. I can't. Neither am I able to think of anything to reply to the question which he counters to my Were you ever a child? Were you ever a parent? But that won't embarrass you. I am afraid that by dint of writing now and again about H. Third, I have managed to pass myself off as a chronic parent. For all the assurance with which I have put forth certain theories on the care and education of the young, many of them mere reflections of Dell's books, I admit at the outset no qualifications to answer the challenge of Wells, even if I was sure that an answer were possible. For all I know, H. Third will grow up to rob a bank, and curse me that he was not spanked with due moralising and ceremony three times a week. However, the letter from Wells is as follows. Dear Floyd Dell, Yours is a good, wise book, so far, but there is a devil, several devils, of indolence in a child. Have you ever been a parent? That too is useful. 
Do you know anything of modern English public schools? How many Americans do? You know of Beedale and Abbotsholm, crank schools, but you know nothing of Audle. Have you ever heard of Audle? Audle has five hundred boys, two of mine. No class teaching practically, boys working in research groups, big botanical gardens, library, concert hall, picture gallery, big engineering laboratories, and a good biological one. Boys encouraged to read stuff like The Liberator and Me, Sex via Biology. See John and Peter. This isn't 1947, this is now. Wake up, America! I ought perhaps to add, writes Dell in a postscript, that the handwriting of my fellow member of the Advisory Council of the Association for the Advancement of Progressive Education is a peculiar hieroglyphic which it is sometimes almost impossible to decipher. Thus I am not quite sure whether he says in my book, is a good wise book, or something quite different. Some of my friends who have seen the letter think that he says it is a god-awful book. The hieroglyphics transliterate equally well either way, but I do not think that particular descriptive phrase is used in England. Anyway, you can take your choice. If Floyd Dell can't think up anything to say in defence of American educational methods, I'm sure I can't. It seems to me that almost without exception, our schools are devoted to that process called large-scale production. I can tell any graduate from your school at a glance, said a man in my hearing. They all bear your stamp unmistakably. And the schoolmaster grinned with delight. Practically all our institutions of learning are finishing schools. We are told, for instance, that the modern public school aims to turn out 100% Americans. It seems to me that 98 or even 97% would be better. That would leave the child some margin for growth and development based on actual experience rather than precept. I'm afraid that 100% may represent nothing more than something poured in by the teacher, and I doubt if many of our educators are sure enough of eye and hand to stop exactly at the minute notch marked 100. There is always the danger that a little too much will be poured in and something will be spilled over. For when a man becomes 101 or 102% American, he must soon dispose of the surplus. He may take it to Mexico in the train of a holy war, or bayonet a path for it into Japan. And recently we have heard not a few around New York who seem to think highly of the possibility of a war to Americanize England. And of course the various agencies to deport, expel and imprison often represent the activities of those who have more Americanism than they can carry like gentlemen. Not only is patriotism poured in at the top in our schools, but literature and art and everything else is administered in like fashion. The pupil is allowed to discover nothing for himself. Here, says the teacher, is a great book. Read it. And yet we wonder that when the boys and girls grow old enough to vote, they usually follow the same order of boss or demagogue, who says, Highland is the people's friend. Vote for him. In fact, we train a public which masses around cheerleaders. It follows the man with the megaphone who shouts, No boys, all together, and nine long rahs on the end. The rahs are the most important part of it. That is the point where the volume of sound swells greater and greater. 
It doesn't seem to me that there is much difference in the psychological processes of the followers of old Hansen and of Big Bill Haywood. They are merely on opposite sides of the field. The trouble with bringing up anybody on cheerleaders is that it is so easy for him to switch. The same man who tells you one day that this country must have law and order if it has to lynch every socialist in the country to get it is just as likely to say the next month that this will never be a true democracy until it has a dictatorship of the proletariat. Not for a minute, mind you, would we suppress the cheering squads or their leaders. Personally, we have no desire to see a social revolution. Our holdings, which include two Liberty Bonds, twenty shares of American Drug Syndicate, and one share of preferred stock in The Liberator, incline us to conservatism. It seems to us that we property holders who want the world to go on without convulsions should urge a policy which would permit those who want to holler to go on hollering and at the same time rope off some section under the grandstand for those who just want to talk. Audle, the home of the Wells children, must be a good school. Very probably it is better than anything in America. And yet we are not willing to accept it as the last word. It terrifies us a little by its efficiency. If H. third goes to Audle's, we know he'll come back to ask us questions which we can't possibly answer, and he'll build toy factories and bridges in the front hall for us to trip over. Out of Audle's will come men to make these toys, real men who will tunnel mountains and frighten rivers out of their courses. Others will harry gems and compose symphonies, and perhaps some will write huge stacks of novels as high as those of Wells himself. Nevertheless, we are a little distressed when Wells speaks so impatiently of the devil of indolence in a child. We wonder whether he may not mean the child's invariable desire to do something other than that suggested by the parent or teacher. There have been times when H. Third has refused my most earnest pleas that he ride his kiddie car up and down the hall. Still, it would hardly be fair to call him indolent simply because he preferred to beat against the front window with a tablespoon. It takes ever so much energy to do that, particularly if you keep it up as long as H. Third does. We are not quite ready to believe that it is essential to exercise the devil, even if he is one of sheer indolence. Naturally, it is repugnant to a man like Wells who realises so keenly the necessity for us all to get together and do something for the world. There is no denying that it was a rush job, but after all, God created man in his image. Some of us have the spirit which animated him during those terrific six days, but we wonder whether the world has no place and never will have any place for those others who emulate the God who rested and talked a little perhaps and sat around and remembered and dreamed and never lifted a finger to add as much to the world as one more fly or another blade of grass. June 15th, 1920 Haywood Brune III writes a correspondent who signs no name, is, fortunately for him, a very young son. Haywood Brune is a very young father. Both will grow up. May the boy grow in grace free from Jürgen's influence, and may the father find his materialism dead sea fruit in time to set such an example that H.B. third will act upon the fifth commandment. It can't be done on smutty fiction or carnal knowledge. It may be, as the writer suggests, that we shall grow in grace. 
However, that is beside the point, for, in the words of the beautiful christening service, a child takes his father for better or worse. Even now we are of the opinion that all the commandments should be observed in decent moderation. We think we are correct in assuming that the fifth is, Honour thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. We intend to serve notice on H. the third not to make this his favourite commandment. If he must break one of them, by all means let it be the fifth. Even though we become much better than we are now, it is going to make us distinctly uncomfortable if he goes about the house honouring us. It will seem too ridiculous, and we doubt very much if he can do it with a straight face. Whenever he feels that he simply must honour his parents, we hope that he will do it in an underhand way behind our backs. Although we hope never to spank him, he will be running a great risk if he makes his honouring frank and flagrant. And anyway... Why should he want to? Hasn't he got Jack the Giant Killer and Dick Whittington and Aladdin and Captain Kidd? Let him honour them. They are all too dead and too deserving to be annoyed by it. End of H. the Third, The Review of a Continuous Performance, Part 3